You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Today on the podcast, I have guest Dr. Christina Delange. Welcome, Christina. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks for having me. And Christina, today we're talking about a topic that is just the centre of general practice in lots of ways. It's so general practice. There are no better specialists to talk about it than GPs. It's the irritable infant, which I know is an area that you sort of have a, an interest and your practice is, is lent towards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I mean, I've did some training under a GP and lactation consultant in Brisbane, Dr. Pamela Douglas, who started the Possums for Mothers and Babies. And that's kind of a tri-pronged organisation with a clinical aspect, a research aspect, and also an educational arm. So I've spent a lot of time over the last, I guess, a little bit over a year seeing mums and babies with exactly this. A lot of very common presentation is the unsettled baby and the crying baby, parents wanting support and help around that. Yeah, it is a really common presentation in general practice, and I think it's such an important one. But let's go to definitions first. How do you define an irritable infant and where does it vary from what's normal? physiology and what's not? Yeah, so I guess I'll start off by giving my own thoughts about what defines a crying or unsettled baby and then I'll talk about what the research and what the evidence shows us. My thoughts really are if you've got a family coming in concerned about their baby who's crying a lot, then that's an unsettled baby. And we know that, and we'll talk about actual numbers here, but we know that there is huge variability from one baby to another baby. And we also know that there's a lot of variability about what families can actually manage. So I make this little analogy over to pain because we talk about pain as being such a subjective experience, isn't it? Talk about two people being able to be exposed to the exact same painful stimulus. One person might define it as eight or nine out of 10 pain but another person might only define it as three or four out of 10 pain. It's very multifactorial in terms of what actually makes up that experience of pain. And I guess from the perspective of a crying baby or an unsettled baby, it can be similar because you can have a family that comes in who might report a baby that's crying all the time and they're really struggling to manage, they're really struggling to cope. But then on further history, they might reveal that maybe on average that baby's crying for an hour a day and we might think, oh my gosh, I just saw another child or I know my baby cried more than that. So what are you complaining about? But ultimately, if that family is finding that a problem or they're perceiving that as a problem, their experience of that is challenging, then it's our role to be able to help them and to support them through that. And I think that's really important. In terms of what the evidence shows us around crying, I mean, in terms of the unsettled baby, I guess we're all quite well versed about the whole idea of colic. And I think even as medical students on our GP term or in a pediatric term, we got it drummed into us, that idea about baby that cries for more than three hours a day for more than three days a week. So that's describing that upper limit. In terms of then what's normal, what do most babies do? Well, in the 1960, there was a doctor that described a normal crying curve and that actually saw crying build up over the first few weeks of life and peak around the six-week mark. And that work has actually continued to inform a lot of guidelines and educational materials that we give out on crying. A lot of GPs listening might be familiar with the Purple Crying Resource where one of those P's stands for peaks at six to eight weeks. And really a lot of that has all stemmed from that research that was done back in the mid-1900s. There was since then though a meta-analysis that's come out that looked at crying durations in Western babies. And it demonstrated though that 
babies cry on average about two hours a day from around birth to six weeks. So it kind of debunked a little bit this idea that it builds up and crescendos and peaks at the six-week mark and then tapers off. And it said that, well, you know what, babies are actually crying a lot from the start and it's fairly consistent for that first six weeks that they're crying around that two-hour mark on average. And then it does taper off. So by about the 12-week mark, it's tapered down to a little bit over one hour. And by about 16 weeks, it's generally settling down for the most part. So it's that first four months of life. I think in reality, as GPs, we've probably heard both stories. I think it's not uncommon to have a family come in and say that they had a one or two weeks of honeymoon and then the baby really started to increase crying over the next few weeks. I think you've also got that family that comes in and says that right from day dot, that baby's cried all day, every day. For us as GPs, we probably see a little bit of both. But in terms of what the evidence is showing us, it's the most recent studies that have looked at this have really showed that it is a fairly consistent thing over those first few weeks. I guess then what this research is doing is normalizing, in inverted commas, a lot of crying in that first few months of life. I think, though, I just always hesitate a little bit with the word normalize because I think sometimes it can be a little bit dangerous in the setting of the crying baby. I mean, we're very much wanting to be able to reassure parents that there's nothing medically wrong with their baby or there's nothing medical causing the crying, but we certainly don't want to alienate them by dismissing their concerns about the baby. So we don't want them to go away thinking, oh, this is normal. There's nothing I can do about it. That doctor told me that I just sort of have to put up with that crying baby until it goes away, you know, until it settles down. It simply doesn't really help them in that moment when they've faced with the with the crying baby. I mean, we know it's such a challenging time for new parents. You go into that newborn period with so many expectations about what it's going to be like, about bonding, about sort of that blissful connection that you're going to develop with your baby about that sweet angelic baby. I think there's a lot of expectation about how wonderful it's going to be. And sometimes it can be a really rude shock as a new mom or dad to watch helplessly as your baby's crying and and is quite distressed and feel like there's nothing you can do. So I guess on the one hand, we want to be saying to families that this is common there's nothing wrong, it's not your fault, that we know actually this will pass. We want to be able to reassure them, but we certainly don't want parents to feel like there's nothing they can do. And we want to be able to arm parents with tools and strategies to be able to actually manage those early months. We don't want them to confuse normal with do nothing. Yeah, it is a hard consultation to balance, isn't it, Christina? Because as you say, on one hand, you're trying to not over-medicalise it, but you're trying to provide a supportive and empathetic care to patients. As you said in the starting point, if a parents distress, well, that's significant unto its own. And if there's worry there, that really needs to be addressed properly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that if parents walk away and feel like there's nothing they can do and it is what it is, I think there is a risk that we can set up a bit of a vicious cycle of the crying. I guess that it kind of feeds into a little bit about potentially what's causing it. There was a a paper that proposed a neurobiological model for cry-fuss problems, and it really hypothesized that crying in those first few months of life signals an activation of that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. And it's possible for babies to get conditioned and into that sensitized stress response. So there's an early stressor or there's a lot of crying and then they get almost like this dialed up sympathetic nervous system and it it ends up in this sort of vicious cycle of crying. So as much as possible, we want to be helping to educate parents to be able to to help reduce this. So we want to reassure them, but we also want to be able to give them strategies to try and help. So just thinking around the frequency or prevalence of irritability in infants, how prevalent is it? And 
How does it vary across the world? I think we've just answered that really. Babies crying on average for two hours a day in those first few weeks. So as an average, two hours a day sounds like a lot. So as GPs, we know it, don't we? We don't need these studies to prove it. Mm. It's always nice to have that evidence to back it up when we can reassure families. But we know it's common because we've got these families knocking on our doors all the time. It's one of the most common presentations I think that parents will bring to us as GPs. The pediatrician, even some families will present to emergency with this as well. Up to, I think, about 25% of babies around that five to six week mark will fit that definition of colic, that three hours a day, three days a week. And about one in six families are going to consult a health professional for advice around that. So, so yeah, I think it is really common. You asked about variability around cultures. If we look at crying patterns across all cultures, we will find that there are actually substantial differences between societies. So babies do, across cultures, do seem to initiate cries around the same number of times over a 24-hour period. And they also seem to share that same evening peak. So everyone talks about that witching hour in the evening. I mean, that seems to be true across the world as well. But we know that babies in the West do seem to cry for longer overall over a 24-hour period compared with some of the other more traditional cultures. And even if we break down Western cultures as well, there's evidence that babies in some societies seem to cry more than others. So big paper published in the Journal of Pediatrics that looked at these crying patterns, it found that Britain, Canada and Italy actually had babies that cried more compared to the least crying was found in countries like Denmark and Japan. So there seems to be a lot of variability. What accounts for that variability? Well, it's hard to really say for sure. There's lots of hypotheses. The authors in that particular study, they talked about potentially genetics to parenting patterns, right through to economic conditions as contributing. Ultimately, I think it's a complex beast and it is likely multifactorial. There was one study that did stand out for me. And I mean, I will admit a bit of a bias here because I do talk to families a lot about cued care and trying to respond to to infants' cues around crying. So there was a study that looked at crying babies between London and Copenhagen. And they were chosen because they actually have a substantially different approach to infant care. So parents in London tend to adopt a much more structured, scheduled approach versus in Copenhagen, where there's more of a infant responsive approach and a lot more physical contact. And in that study, London babies were found to cry about 50% more overall in a 24-hour period. So that was sort of suggestive that acute care, you know, responding to a baby's signals and having increased physical contact with a baby may actually be protective for reducing overall crying. It didn't necessarily reduce the number of uncontrollable, unsoothable events, but it certainly seemed to reduce the overall amount of crying. Let me go off track a little bit here. Do you think parents get better as they sort of go down the children? So, you know, does child number two Does the parent uh, handle irritable child number two better than irritable child number one and number three better than that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that that really comes down to anecdote, doesn't it? I think it does sometimes go either way. I think there will be a lot of families that will report that. I mean, I I just caught up with some friends actually a few weeks ago and they ju- they've just had baby number three and the mum made the comment to me that looking back on baby number one, there was just so much more time to be reading every single thing and worrying about every single thing. And, you know, so by the time you've got to baby three, the baby's just in the pram, in the carrier, in the car, coming along to everything else that you're having to automatically do because you've got to do running around with the other kids. And you're sort of not getting so, I guess, strung up 
Mm. and trying so hard to potentially stick to specific routines or stick to specific schedules. There's a lot of this stuff about baby led weaning where you sort of do a bit more of this avoid the purees and the force feeding and just get straight to allowing them to have sort of whatever you're eating and I saw a meme that was something to the effect of baby led weaning or is this actually just weaning for baby number three or four because essentially you know that's what happens (laughs) the first time you're making all the purees and doing everything perfectly and by baby number three or four they they got they got fed some sausage by the older kid and they survived so it's probably going to be all right. (laughs) There's so many factors that play with this. You know, there's, there's factors around the baby, there's factors around the family, there's factors around the, the parents. It, it's just such a complex sort of intersection, isn't it? Absolutely. So without wanting to over-medicalise it now, we do have to do a process of, of medical exclusions, really, when we see an irritable infant. So what medical conditions are important to, for GPs to look at when they're assessing the, the irritable infant? Yeah, look, I think this is a really important question and it's really important for us as health professionals to have this at the forefront of our mind when we're seeing these babies. I think sometimes it can be easy for a parent to come in with a crying baby and we just switch into that autopilot, reassure, reassure, reassure. And whilst in the majority of cases, actually, that probably is appropriate, there are going to be a small number of cases where there may be a medical condition contributing. So those cases, I guess it is important that we're tuned to that and we're using our clinical skills in order to ensure we're not missing something sinister. There's probably less than five percent of the families who are presenting with babies with excessive crying that actually do have a met underlying medical cause so it's not it's not huge but there but there will be some I guess the biggest things I think about are infections. So we want to be thinking about like a urinary tract infection. We want to be thinking about an acute otitis media, meningitis. We want to be thinking about gastrointestinal causes. So things like pyloric stenosis, gut obstruction, incarcerated hernia, raised intracranial pressure is something to be on the radar. Growth faltering. So a baby that's not actually putting on enough weight and there might be various things that are contributing to that. Some Something actually, Tim, that I've not seen, but we're always taught to look for it, is the hair tourniquet. I'm still yet to have a baby come in and be able to give them a magical cure right there on the spot by removing the hair tourniquet. I don't know if you've ever actually gotten to do that. No. There you go. So yeah, look, I think there definitely are medical conditions that we need to be considering. And it's so important that we're going back to the basics and we take a really thorough history of the presenting complaint and do a really thorough head-to-toe new baby examination. Always think of it as a bit of a red flag to me if a parent comes in and they report a sudden change in crying behavior. So a baby that's been a relatively settled baby, but oh, doctor, the last two days I've just been crying uncontrollably and I really don't know what's going on. You know, that really what would worry me. Routinely, I get the weight trajectory and I plot growth on a WHO chart and you can get the zero to six month chart. Everyone sees a zero to two years, but you can actually on the website get a zero to six month chart. And so it extends out that first 12 weeks. You can actually plot each week, not saying that we should be weighing at babies every single week but certainly if there's concerns about the weight trajectory then I'll, I'll plot all of the weights and just see what's actually happening are they dropping centile lines and I often also send away a urine sample 
because I have actually had a couple of babies who have ended up with UTIs. So I guess whenever that happens, you're always a bit alert to it. So yeah, I will always send off, uh, not always, but if I am a little bit concerned about the crying being quite on the excessive end, then I will send off a urine. Certainly if I'm worried about the baby being febrile in front of me, well, then that needs immediate attention. But often I'll just give them the form and a urine jar and educate them. I, I never do bag catches, but I'll educate them on how to catch a urine and just send that away just to make sure. Great. Yeah, look, that's that's a really good assessment and that gives a lot of information. It, yeah, as you say, it, the risk is really switching off to these patients, isn't it? Because you're often seeing them quite a few times. Even with your second or third or fourth assessment, things can sort of medically change. So just being sort of aware of that and thinking around that, particularly if the child changes. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think we really have to be alert. And that idea that the parent knows that child best, you know, I think we really have to remember that. And if a parent comes in, certainly if they report there's been a sudden change, we should be taking that very seriously. What are the other things to consider in the assessment, Christina? Yeah, so I guess my approach to the crying baby, I actually use a five domain approach in this situation. And I guess I will acknowledge, mentioned at the start, I did some training under Dr. Pamela. Douglas and she has some educational modules called neuroprotective developmental care and this approach does come from that so I'll just acknowledge that. So this really looks at five different domains that can be contributing. So we talk about feeds, we talk about sleep, we talk about sensory nourishment, we talk about maternal health and we talk about the baby's health. And I guess these domains represent the sort of interlocking, interweaving, interconnected factors that contribute to cry fuss problems in early infancy. And I think adopting this sort of approach really allows us to kind of have a holistic approach to assessing and helping these families and is really important just to acknowledge the contribution that all of these domains can have. I mean, most families will come in and be focused on one particular facet. So they might be worried about the feeding, the back arching, the issues with the breastfeeding or bottle feeding. They might be worried about the sleep concerns. They might be coming in because they're worried about the postnatal depression. But actually, if we take a step back and we try and sort of unpack and unravel each of those domains, it's not uncommon to find that they're all contributing in some way. So I guess an example of this might be the family that comes in concerned about a newborn infant's sleep and they come in reporting that they're struggling to get this baby down for naps, they're spending an hour just trying to settle the baby, that nights are really interrupted, that they're waking excessively overnight, there's lots of crying around all of this. The family comes in because of that sort of concern around the crying and the sleep. But actually, if you break it down, you'll find that potentially there's some undiagnosed feeding issues. There might be some poor positional stability or poor attachment. And so that baby's not actually transferring milk effectively. So therefore that baby isn't actually getting satiated. So therefore they're coming back to the breast quite frequently or they're waking quite frequently overnight because they're just not getting a proper fill. There might be sensory issues. So potentially that mum's so infatuated with trying to get that baby to sleep and trying to get that baby settled that actually they're not necessarily getting out of the house. They're cooped up inside trying to read the book 
get get into a routine. So actually that baby's yearning for sort of experience and to get outside and to see the world, but yet they end up inside all day trying to work on the sleep, etc. They're not necessarily getting nourishment from a sensory perspective. The mum's mental health is going to be contributing here. She's going to be feeling quite helpless, quite hopeless, feeling maybe potentially starting to feel like a bit of a failure because nothing seems to be working. That's going to contribute to her own mental health. And then potentially the baby's health as well. If there's not great transfer of milk, that baby might be putting on weight just, you know, they might be getting the 130 or 140 grams a week that we say, oh, it's okay, but it's probably not optimal. So, you know, I think all of these domains can actually be contributing. These are really complex cases, it's not something that we're going to then solve in five minutes. And we're not going to do it justice if we just focus on the sleep and just start throwing strategies at the sleep. Because if we don't fix the underlying feeding issues, if we don't help this baby get satiated, if we don't help this baby to put on a little bit more weight, if we don't help mum's mental health, don't help her with her coping strategies, if we don't help this family to get out of the house, get this baby sensory experience, etc., then just dealing with one facet is not going to be enough. You know, I think that we can add into this as well the fact that these families are getting so much other help I mean often they're going to come in and they might have seen midwives in hospital and LC and maybe another LC and then they've seen the child health nurse and they've seen a pediatrician and maybe another GP and they've been given advice from a friend or a family member so there's going to be so much conflicting advice being thrown around and it really takes time to sit down and unpack all of that and take a holistic approach I guess to what's going on for that family that focuses on all of those different areas. Rule out the medical stuff, get a really good history about what's happening in all of those different domains. Yeah, there's so much to consider there, Christina. It always strikes me when I see this consultation that it it is often the first presentation that you see mum with postnatal depression. And for mum, they often don't want it to be about them. They want it to be about the baby, but it is the opportunity to sort of unveil those the dysfunction in, in mother's emotional well-being and, and often in the family's emotional well-being because it, especially in, in a, a, a mum with a first child, it's often such a big change in their life and the loss of a locus of control is such a, a big factor in sort of driving unhappiness, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I talked about it earlier, like that whole, the expectation about what that newborn period is going to be like. And if it's not like that, can be hugely disappointing. A lot of mums who feel like they're in control in so many other areas of their life, they might've been quite successful in their career, in their job. They feel like they've got a lot of control over that. They know what they're doing. And parenthood is just so different, isn't it? It's not like anything else that you've done before. You can really feel that loss of control and feel like not doing a good enough job if they're not well supported and if we're not on to picking up those mental health issues if we're not doing that good screening for postnatal depression or postnatal mental health issues then potentially we're going to miss that and that mum who really needs support is not necessarily going to get it I mean as a GP we're so well placed to be able to pick that up we know the families hopefully we know the families really well we've already got a good relationship with them through the pregnancy or even before the pregnancy so we're really I guess then the best place to be able to unpack all of that and, and to know when mum needs some help or needs support. So finally, what's the usual course or 
prognosis for an irritable infant? Well, I guess we touched on this at the start. We know sort of from the population studies of crying patterns that does seem to taper off and generally it has settled by around that four-month mark. So I guess in that sense, it is generally a self-limiting condition. And most families, let's be honest, most families are going to make it through those early months regardless of intervention or regardless of what goes on. I guess the biggest thing to remember here is that whilst we know that it settles and whilst we can acknowledge that it is self-limiting, I definitely don't want it to come across that then that it's a trivial point. And I really can't harp on that enough. These families, when they're coming in to see us, they're, they're crying out for help. That mum or dad knows deep inside of them that, that something isn't right when that baby's crying. And we have to be able to listen to that and we have to take that seriously. And we have to be able to spend time with them to unpack what's contributing and reassure and educate and do all of those things. So yeah, I mean, look, yes, it is for the most babies, it is going to settle down and the prognosis is good. I think we should be mindful of the fact that excessive crying can be a marker of risk. I mean, we've just talked about postnatal depression. We certainly know that families where baby does have really unsettled behavior, excessive crying, there is going to be a risk of postnatal depression in mum and also mental health issues for dad. There is definitely an association with premature breastfeeding cessation. So the more that we can support these families, potentially the better outcomes we're going to have from a breastfeeding perspective. There is a risk of child abuse, increased risk of child abuse. So we have to be mindful of that. And potentially, it's always hard sometimes to draw these big conclusions, but potentially there's going to be a risk of feeding behavioral issues later on in childhood, particularly those babies where the crying sort of persists after that first few months. And that's probably to do with that sort of really dialed up sympathetic nervous system and then the impact that's going to have downstream. So yeah, so certainly for the majority of these babies, it is going to settle down and the families will get through it. But we want to make sure that the message going out that this is serious and we do want to be helping them to get through it. Christina, thank you so much. That's given our audience a lot to think about and a lot of information about assessing an irritable infant. Our next episode, which will be coming up, will be on the management of irritable infants. So thank you so much for the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Mm-hmm.